one of the freedoms afforded the preacher of being able to print in your bulletins 2 Corinthians SV, selected verses, is that it gives that preacher the freedom near the end of the week to more clearly discern what the scripture should be. Uh, This morning I'm actually going back a little into last week's passage from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 17 uh, and reading through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a cosmopolitan church, and trying to help them learn how not to fight. For they are fighting over who is the best and who is right and who is the greatest. In their case, the game was not about football or politics, but about wisdom and rhetoric. Who had the most wisdom and knowledge and who could dazzle the crowd with eloquent and moving speeches are those who would win. And each person in that community as a rhetorician had their own following. Paul wants those early Christians to see that their boasting is foolishness. For the only real power and strength that they have comes from God's gracious act in Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the message version. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. But for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. I love the way that's expressed. In the literal Greek meaning, it's, For those who are being saved, not for those who have been saved or for those who are saved, but it's always in process for those who are being saved. This is the way God works, and most powerfully as it turns out. It's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust him into the way of salvation. Moving now further down to 126. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. He's bursting their bubble. 
Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. You'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you in on God's master stroke, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches and the latest philosophy. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is, then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. I was unsure of how to go about this, and I felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death, if you want to know the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. However, the message came through anyway. God's spirit and God's power did it which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not to some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or any other preacher. Paul speaks for every preacher of the gospel called to preach Christ crucified when he said, I am not sure how to go about this. And I feel totally inadequate, and I am scared to death if you want to know the truth. And if anything comes out of this, it is not from me and my preaching, but more in spite of my preaching. And if there is a message here, it is from God and God's spirit, not from some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth to a congregation who take their wisdom and their knowledge and their preachers very seriously. Grounded on the wisdom of Socrates and Aristotle and Plato as a Greek community, as well as the power of the law, the Torah, as a Jewish synagogue, which they were, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul is writing to these early Christians fighting over who would win the Super Bowl of best preachers. With no sense of humility, they were boastful and arrogant, thinking that they had found him or it, that they got it, and that their man was the best. Paul didn't hesitate to burst our bubble. It was not about them, he said. Instead, it was always about God. Even God's foolishness, he said, is wiser than all the wisdom of the world times a thousand. And you know what proves it? It's the cross of Christ. That burst the bubble of our self-deceit and arrogance and drops them and us to our knees. 
If not the cross, then hopefully something will. I was talking to Noah Altuis last Sunday. I should have gotten permission for this. Forgiveness is easier than asking permission, I guess. Dressed up in his marine dress blues, sitting on the second row. And I asked him how he had changed in the six months since he joined the Corps. And he said, looking back on what I was before, I am almost embarrassed by how immature I was. Now, he said, I'm more humble and respectful. Forged by the crucible of his master sergeant at boot camp, Noah experienced metanoia, that is, repentance, a turning back and seeing that which in his life was not exactly right, and now seeing what in his life had become right. Repentance. The result was a deep sense of humility and a newness of possibility. It left me thinking how much we could all use repentance, speaking for myself, metanoia, plagued as we are with our deep fear and paranoia that for no rational reason has gone viral. Apparently the only thing we are more paranoid about these days than immigrants is politicians and the media. Paranoia is fear that is projected outside of ourselves to all the darkness around us. Metanoia is about willing to look at the darkness within us. Somebody is out to get me. Somebody is trying to do something. They're the problem. Paranoia. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I'm actually wrong. Maybe it's not all about me after all. As my good friend says, you know, if we're not talking about me, it's not worth talking about. Bill and I were talking recently about this, and we both think that we have lost our bearings, our deeper spiritual values like humility and confession and contemplation and belief that only God is sovereign, not us. And that this is contributing to our cultural sickness of paranoia and fear. We've lost our North Star. It's time, therefore, for us to repent, to choose metanoia over paranoia, to turn around and face the facts about ourselves and quit blaming so much on what is outside of us. This is not a political statement. It is at the heart of the biblical narrative. For some reason, I picked up M. Scott Peck's 33-year-old book, The People of the Lie, and started reading it again. And those of us who remember Peck remember his road less traveled, the first sentence of which, life is difficult. I actually taught this course 
35 years ago before I went into seminary. And it was an astonishing book that was able to bring together psychiatry, which he is uh, one, a psychiatrist, and spirituality and theology. It sort of crossed the divide between the two. In The People of the Lie, Peck, a psychiatrist, as I said, and also a Christian, makes the case that the propensity for human evil exists in all of us, but not all of us give in to it. It turns out he knew well this propensity both professionally in dealing with his patients, but also personally in his own life, as it came out later in his autobiography that he had trouble remaining sober drug-free, and faithful in his marriage. Peck defines human evil as our inability or unwillingness to recognize our own sin and shortcomings. In other words, we refuse to look at ourselves honestly. And instead, we project our own darkness onto others Anytime you hear someone blaming and scapegoating others as a matter of life, there it is. Now, all of of us do this some of the time, but some of us do this most of the time. Those, he says, are infected with what he calls malignant narcissism. Not only do they scapegoat, they lash out at anyone who threatens their pride, demeaning them and sacrificing others to preserve their faults self-image of perfection. In other words, they project their own evil into the world and unto others so as not to have to face it in themselves. We know in ourselves what that's like. This is why Peck calls this book The People of the Lie. Evil originates not from the absence of guilt, but from the effort we put forth in order to escape and deny it. Versus St. Teresa of Lisieux, the early mystic who said, if you were willing to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be for Jesus a pleasant place of shelter. If you were able to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be for Jesus a pleasant place of shelter. Maybe the key is serenely. Evil will not let us serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to ourselves. In fact, it will not let us bear it at all. The Bible calls pride hubris. But there are a thousand names for it. My name is Legion. Conceit, vainglory, self-righteousness, But in the end, it's still the same, and it cuts off God from us, us from each other, and ourselves from our true selves. And it's been my experience and the experience of others that there are only two things that can break us free of that hard shell of pride and hubris. Call call it our shell of ego. The only two things that can break break our... Narcissism and self-deceit are suffering and love. If we fall hard enough, we bottom out, we might crack that shell and the light of 
some newness might enter in through that crack. Or if we experience suffering in a loved one, or in our case especially the Son of God, or if the love of God or a love of some transcendent other breaks in on us and shatters our pride, then we began to see ourselves as we truly are. Who we are and whose we are. Then, hopefully, we turn away from ourselves and turn back to God. Becoming, as God did in Christ, those who are willing to suffer for and love others. This is why Paul holds up the power of the cross. It is the cosmic act of divine suffering and love that is strong enough to shatter the hard shell of our self-deceit. And if we stand under it long enough, we are knocked to our knees where we begin dying to our false self and see truthfully who we are as we surrender. I know you hate that word, surrender. It's for losers. But there's no other word that works. It is a giving up of our willfulness and our ego to a new possibility, a true self and life that is no longer dominated and driven by our ego, guilt, and shame needs. It is at this point that we become our true selves, made in the image of God, humble and contrite and kind and self-giving and generous, more Christ-like. I'm not sure if it's a true story or just apocryphal, but nevertheless, it works about Cardinal Jean-Marie Lustiger, who was the Catholic Bishop of Paris from 1981 to 2005. He had converted from Judaism to become a Christian. Apparently, according to the story, he stood up in one particular homily and told about a group of boys, three of them, who decided to mischievously pay a trick on the priest in the church in their little town. And so they came up with a bunch of outrageous sins that they had done, and they were going to go into the priest and, and give their confession and ask for absolution. And, and one boy went in and came up with all this wild stuff you can't imagine. The priest being wise enough and experienced enough to see what was happening sat there and nodded and said, your sins are forgiven, young man, but you must do penance go up to the chancel by the altar where the crucifix hangs and look up into the eyes of Christ and say, you died for me and I don't give a damn. Three times and then your sins will be forgiven. So the young boy thought, but this is a, this is a slide. I mean, what is this? So he walks up, he looks up into the crucifix. You died for me, I don't give a damn. You died for me. I don't give a damn. You know how it ends. You died for me. And he could not get the rest of it out. 
Lustinger told this story and ended it by saying, that boy was baptized in 1940 and took the name Jean-Marie. He wrapped up the story by saying, that boy is here now, standing before you. Whether apocryphal or not, that is nevertheless the experience that we all must have in order to be broken of our self-deceit. The only thing strong enough to break us, to repent, is not fear, is not power, only the love that transcends all of us, a love that breaks the chains of our paranoia, brings down the dividing walls of hostility, overcomes the powers of sin and evil and opens us up to become not people of the lie, but people of the truth. May it be so as we stand under that cross, not just once, over and over, in Christ's name. Amen.